doesn't singing charge one's consideration and spirit? As we give thought to the words that we've sung together, the messages that have been contained in these songs, and the privilege that's been ours to lift our voices together in singing. Certainly for that reason alone, we've been blessed to come together tonight, and certainly in our prayer, and the opportunity to open the Word of God, as we shall do over the next few moments, and give some attention to that book of 2 Timothy. I hope you'll be turning to that little four-chapter book with me in the heart of the New Testament as we devote the next few moments on this Sunday to think just for a few minutes about a key thought or idea that appears in each one of the chapters, and from that to assist us as we make further preparation for the gospel meeting that begins a short one week from today. As you'll notice, I've entitled the lesson a gospel meeting part two because we looked at part one last Sunday evening, and as we did that, we noticed several ideas not the least of which were a few features and thoughts about the glory, the brightness, and the lovely privilege that's ours to be possessors of the truth in the sense we can share it and speak to others about it. Tonight, as we look at a second part, though, in that series, leading up to the gospel meeting, our focus will be 2 Timothy. As I mentioned earlier, might I invite us to turn to that book? As we are well aware, it is the second epistle that Paul wrote to Timothy. And as he addressed it and wrote it, so many thoughts, so many powerful and amazing things are written in it. For just a moment, might it not be at least fruitful to recollect this? Timothy, of course, as we learn from the opening chapter of 1 Timothy, he was a budding gospel preacher, and Paul had left him on this occasion at this place, this place called Ephesus, so that he could continue the work there preaching with thoroughness and with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as Timothy was left in that place, Paul already knew that he would face many decisions. After all, Ephesus was an upcoming and progressive city. It was a place in which the gospel would meet many obstacles and difficulties. And Paul forewarned Timothy of many things that he must thoroughly keep in mind so that he would be ready to meet those challenges when they came. We certainly, in a brief period of time tonight, couldn't look at all that's in 2 Timothy. But as I mentioned, it does seem that there are a few nuggets of truth in each chapter, especially useful, as we are now just a mere few days from our gospel meeting. I would invite us to just look at those this evening and use them in the following way. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, as 2 Timothy is our focus, let's begin in chapter 1. In the sixth verse of 2 Timothy chapter 1, we encounter the following rather innocently simple statement. It does in fact sound so simple, but might we again notice the thoroughness of it. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Inasmuch as Paul was an inspired individual in that first century and capable of imparting spiritual measures and gifts by the laying on of his hands, he here reminds Timothy to be stirred up, to do so in light of the capability he had been given by the laying on of Paul's hands themselves. And as we give some thought to that, doesn't it perhaps bring us to this point? Notice with me the word that's translated stir up. Maybe you're reading in a translation that will use a different verb. That word literally means to rekindle, or to kindle anew, or to resuscitate. 
In other words, Paul is admonishing Timothy to kindle anew with ever brightness of flame the character of what is permitted in you, Timothy, by virtue of the laying on of my hands. Make sure that that gift is used to maximum capability. Make sure that you are employing it to the fullness of the glory of God. Isn't it interesting that as we reflect just briefly upon that thought, doesn't it point us to at least consider this? It perhaps isn't wise to simply assume from that that Timothy was a bit derelict or lazy in his duties. This may have been simply Paul's way of insisting that he continue to grow and to mature, that he continue to, in fact, make use maximally of those gifts that he had. But isn't that a valiant lesson even for us today? Even as we give thought to the gospel meeting that's shortly before us, isn't it entirely possible that any of us, too, could find ourselves in need of stirring up the capability that's ours? I'm not suggesting we are capable of miracles, for we are not. And I'm not insisting that you and I are in need of someone laying hands on us so that we can do such things. But isn't it true that we can be in need of kindling anew? We can very much be in place to where our religion has become a rut. We simply go through the motions. The fire of interest and vigor simply doesn't burn as brightly as it once did. The characteristic have died from burning flame down to merely lukewarm embers. And if that's the case for you or me, then perhaps this meeting will be the very matter needful to rekindle, to kindle anew, to resuscitate that bright flame for the cross of Jesus Christ that once burned within us. Paul did admonish Timothy, didn't he? to stir up that gift that's in you. We hear it peeping. Certainly couldn't do us any harm too to give thought to stirring up the opportunities that are ours. That, of course, will begin with individually what are you and what, of course, am I. As you'll notice some of the additional passages on that slide. In chapter 2 of this same book, verse 14, Paul seemingly made a careful reminder again to Timothy that ties in interestingly with this. Inasmuch as he said, stir up the gift that's in you, you'll note verse 14 of the second chapter goes on to say, not giving heed, not paying attention, not giving overt concentration to those things that are striving about what is of no profit. Those issues that merely subvert the hearers rather than to fortify and build their faith. Now, in light of this coming meeting, as Brother Sim shares with us the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8, as he prompts you and me to think about truly those matters of eternal significance and import, you and I might too be in need of a spiritual reviving. I'm reminded, wasn't it true, in Ezra chapters 8 and 9, that there was a time in that ancient day of Israel, they had come back from captivity. The days in Babylon were past, but they were again in need of being revived. And Ezra, in fact, even admitted it. He said in prayer to God, Thou hast given us a reviving, a place to hang on the nail, if you please, in the character of God's presence. You and I might be in need of that same thing next week. And praise be unto God, the opportunity, if the Lord spares our life in this world until then, it shall take place. We look forward to Brother Sims being with us 
He is rather well known in this area at least, having preached at Willow Avenue for, for some amount of time. But his messages no doubt will be penetrating, forceful and powerful, and most importantly, sound and scriptural in as much as he will simply stir up within us the no nature of what the God of heaven has revealed. As you think with me about the stirring up as mentioned in chapter 1, isn't it a frightening admonition when we recollect what the Lord Jesus Christ Himself told the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. That too was a congregation about which many positive things might have been said. But there was one overarching and one very evident matter that was such troubling one that it made the Lord sick. You're neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. They felt without question that all was well. History reminds us that that particular area had been devastated by an earthquake. However, that church by its own capability had rebuilt itself, having refused any aid that the particular Roman government had offered. And perhaps they felt that they could take care of themselves. I don't need any help. I am self-sufficient. It would seem from the Lord's warning, He said, Repent and do the first works. He also reminded them in such power that they were nowhere near what they thought they were. Whereas they felt that all was well, He said, Really, you're naked and miserable and wretched and poor and blind. You see, they really were in need of revival. They were lukewarm. If you and I find ourselves in a similar lot, Perhaps this meeting next week will recharge us as well. But at the very least, if Paul, an inspired apostle, could write to Timothy and urge him to make certain to stir that up, should you and I not consider it also needful, essential, and vital to stir up within us the vigor and the earnestness and the fervor for the gospel of Jesus Christ? But not only in chapter number 1. What about yet another lesson, this time taken from chapter number 2? In addition to stirring up, notice verse number 4 of the second chapter, if you would. Paul again, in writing, simply has these words to say, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. We might notice that as Paul began, and as he in fact wrote what we recognize as that verse, he didn't use the word perhaps, he didn't use the word maybe, he didn't use any kind of word that leaves any ambiguity. He simply said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Paul stated a fact, didn't he? And we understand that still to this day when it comes to military matters. Those in the military be they soldiers, be they other operable personnel and individuals, they are expected, given that the country's welfare and protection from foreign nations is at stake, and given the nature of often the confidentiality of their efforts, they must not compromise that by entangling themselves with carnal, mundane matters that are not related to the issue at hand. In light of that, note the application that Paul makes. After stating that rather simply, he goes on to say, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Paul's point is easily obtained, isn't it? 
you and I are soldiers to the cross of Christ. We follow our captain, Hebrews 2 verse 10. We are admonished, fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6 12. And are we not told in Ephesians chapter 6 of a large array of matters with which we are to array ourselves? Everything from the helmet of salvation, shield of faith, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of priests, and a whole host of other items contained in that inspired listing. Perhaps that reminds us of this fact. The devil is all about us. Striving to bring you and me to the point where we are entangled with the things of this life. For Satan knows it well. If I can get, he would think, that Christian, be it man or woman, to entangle him or herself in the things of this life, they will not focus so much on Christ. They won't focus so much on the Bible. They won't focus so much on the issues of eternal import. And I will eventually and gradually bring them to the place where I can overwhelm them conquer them, bring them into the place where I need them to be, and that's lost, engulfed in sin, separate and apart from Jesus Christ. Paul again said that soldier doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of this life. That's another element as we approach our gospel meeting. We each need reminders that the particular circumstances about us can be so easily enticing so easily appealing, so easily captivating of our attention, and we need to be reminded, and no doubt that shall happen in our meeting, to not entangle ourselves in a way that leads us aside from the purity, from the requirements, and from loyalty to Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm reminded of that scene, a rather notable one in the Old Testament. We each remember it well. It was that occasion in which David himself committed adultery with Bathsheba. Not only did he do that, he in fact ultimately killed her husband. But notice what happened along the way. First, while Uriah was still living, we recall that David sent to Joab and had that man brought back. And we remember that David had the hope that he would go down and there dwell with his wife and that child would actually be his, or at least thought that it would be his. But do we remember what it was, was Uriah's response. When everything was made prepared and all was made ready, Uriah refused to go down to be with his wife. And in 2 Samuel 11, verse 11, he gave the reason why. He said, Joab and the servants, the soldiers are out in the field. How can it be thought that I, would enjoy these luxuries and go down with my wife. You'll notice that the principle behind that sounds amazingly similar to the one that we just read in 2 Timothy. No soldier that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Uriah was a soldier, and he was going to remain loyal and faithful and true to that calling, and it meant not going down and enjoying the luxuries of the home place while the soldiers and the captain and others were at war. You and I are also at war. Our adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And he is on the prowl looking for you and for me. If you and I are weak, if you and I choose to entangle ourselves, is it not true that he will find that weak link, that weak moment, that weak opportunity, and he will engulf us also in, in so doing? Hurt almost irreparably, 
the influence and integrity we might have had for Christ. This meeting may assist us not only, you see, in stirring up that which is within us, but reminding us time and again of the fact that we mustn't entangle ourselves in these things of the world. In 2 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21, on that occasion didn't Peter tell us by inspiration about some who in fact related very closely to this. He said they had escaped the pollutions of this world. And that sounds so grand and wonderful. But the sentence wasn't finished because he said they again were entangled therein and overcome. Could that happen to you and me? Without a doubt. So even though at this present moment all might be well with our soul, it's not to say we wouldn't be well served by a stern warning, a good reminder, a set of considerations helping us see that we can again be entangled and overcome. These two lessons, one taken from chapter 1 and one taken from chapter 2, perhaps highlight by noting in verse number 22 the following interesting admonition. 2 Timothy 2 verse 22, it begins so simply, Flee youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We look forward to assembling with those who do call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What better company could we enjoy than a time like that? But it is to be noted he began by saying, flee youthful lust. Paul didn't say, tarry with it to see how close you can be to it. He didn't say in that passage to remain somewhat distant associates. He said, flee from these don't remain in the environment, don't remain in the vicinity, don't remain in the proximity. We need that reminder as well, 20 centuries later, do we not? Thus, in addition to that opening stanza of chapter 1, verse 6, this second one in chapter 2, verse 4, what about a third one? Take it from chapter 3, as you might have expected. As we look into chapter number 3, We shall find this one nestled in the very opening verse of this chapter. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Perilous times shall come in the last days. We know from the New Testament's presentation that we are in the last days and have been now for almost 20 centuries. But that doesn't change the fact that in the sense we're in the last days... Difficulties have come and no doubt shall continue to. This word perilous that the King James translators use, you might notice other renditions may use a different word. That original word has in it the following sets of ideas. The idea of fierceness, the concept of that which is of savage character, the understanding of harshness and hardness and that which is hard to bear. These kinds of days are coming. That's what Paul wrote. You and I now understand that those kind of days have now often been our lot in the human frame for quite some time. But might we not forget, we're still in need of understanding hardships, difficulties, afflictions, oppressions, and even other incredibly terrible matters along that line can still be our lot and can still challenge our faith to the very core of our being. Are you and I ready to face it if it were to come? Is your faith in mine a fortified character? 
Is it of sufficient strength? Is it based on a rock to the point that it could endure if overwhelmingly difficult days were to become our lot? We understand all about us. The plight and difficulty of denominationalism is rampant. The cultural character of relativism and compromise is all around us, and it's tempting for us to feel that the same is in order. We notice the inspired, the inspired apostle didn't compromise, and we understand that the New Testament writers also recognized that the truth of Christ was not a compromisable matter. Perilous times and grievous days. It is to be noted in light of all of that, that some of those next matters on that slide are certainly worthy of our consideration. We need to have a strength that's strong, a faith that's unbending, a faith that is understanding that even though the pressures of life may mount and others may be so strong in their character of persuasion, nonetheless, you and I, just as Paul admonished Timothy, we need to be grounded more deeply than that. And this meeting will help us appreciate that reality. For a few days, Sunday to Wednesday, we will be embedded in and engulfed by presentation of the wonderful Word of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And as we hear that presented from various and sundry angles, various and sundry perspectives, we will have the opportunity to be strengthened so that even with the coming of more perilous and grievous days, we would be able to face it, to endure it, to conquer it, and emerge victorious from it. Those New Testament writers, in fact, also challenge us with thoughts like these. Notice chapter 3, verse 13 of this same book. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The plot and the plight of deception is still so rampant, isn't it? There are those who would in fact, in such eloquent and persuasive ways, strive to deceive you and me, leading us along the pathway of doom and evil. Quite often, their motives may well be sincere. Their thoughts may well be, at least in their purview, a right thing. But may we not forget... There were false Christs in the Lord's day, Matthew 24. There were those who had the nerve and audacity and perhaps with all sincerity to portray that I am the Christ. Might we be so quick to say many have been so deluded over the intervening centuries. It seems that every now and again we hear a news story where someone claims to be a new prophet. Someone even claims to be the Christ, the successor of Jesus Christ Himself. And for those knowledge of the, of the Bible, we can but laugh that someone would be so deluded, that they would be so confused and so perplexed. But may we say that our youngsters, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, if the world shall stand, they will continue to face grievous and perilous, if difficult, decisions. May they be ready. Partly that readiness will be found by the example you and I set. Have we made our arrangements to be here at every service next week? To show to our youngsters and those others we can influence that this is serious business. This isn't like going to a ball game. And it's not like going to the Lotus social environment in the city of Cookville. And it's not like going to a play or to a movie. 
This is a place where the Scriptures will be opened. Songs praising God will be sung. Prayers collectively adoring and again approaching the very throne of God. Revelation 8 verses 4 and 5 will be uttered. Association with those of like precious faith will take place. 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1. We should look forward to that opportunity. Not the least of which for the reason preparing us for the decisions in life that we shall face. As we come to the close of chapter 3 though... It does bring us to a yet another matter, this one found in the fourth chapter of this book. Another nugget of truth that you and I can appreciate leading us to the realization of the gospel meeting. This one, of course, is based on the lesson text that was read in our hearing earlier this evening. Found in the opening verses of chapter 4, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that chapter begins in such a sterling fashion. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead as appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. That's the first four verses of 2 Timothy 4. As we reflect on verses 2 and 3 primarily, wouldn't it be fair to make some of these observations? After reminding Timothy, and again, Paul was talking to a gospel preacher, but after reminding him of this, the reality of the judgment, and the fact that Christ is going to judge one and all, the very next words out of his mouth, the inspired penman were these, Preach the word. And it was interestingly stated, wasn't it? It wasn't conditioned upon, preach it if they hear it. It wasn't conditioned upon the size of the audience, preach it if there's a house full. It wasn't conditioned upon any other features or facts. He said, preach the Word. That word preach occurs so often within the pages of the New Testament. A simple selection of some of those reminds us that the word really means to herald, to proclaim, to set forth... And thus, Paul basically told Timothy, you in fact set forth that marvelous gospel message. You do so with the following realizations. Recall some of the features that surrounded its usage in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, Peter and the other eleven stood up and preached. Acts 2 verses 14 and following. We recall in chapter 5 verses 41 and 42, there was a resounding preaching from house to house. In chapters 14 and following, the realization on many occasions on the gospel missionary journeys, when you and I give thought to the ways they preached, the ways in which that took place, and the marvelous wonder that described it, doesn't it challenge us with this opportunity next week? We have the blessed privilege of assisting in preaching. Now, Brother Sims will do the proclamation primarily, but you and I can invite and help make sure that individuals are here, those who need to hear those unsearchable riches of Christ. You too, as well as I, can by our example, by the invitations we extend, by the Bible studies that we may offer to have with individuals. Those will be part of proclaiming that wonderful message of Jesus. You'll notice he said, Preach the Word. He didn't say preach the latest Wall Street Journal article, the latest acumen from science or theology. He didn't say preach the Christian courier. 
He didn't say preach the other matters like Reader's Digest. Not cute stories, bear tales, fables, or comical jokes. That's not what Paul said to preach. The pulpit needs to be flaming forth with the Scriptures, the Word. And isn't it lovely to give thought to the Word as it is set forth in the Word of God? Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. The psalmist affirmed in Psalm 119 verse 97. We notice in fact some 43 verses later in Psalm 119 verse 140. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. In light of our love for the word of God, is there any other message we would want proclaimed? Is there any other message that can save the sin-sick souls of those who are present? And of course the answer is no. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. And so it is that as we look again forward to the meeting, and we look forward to hearing a double dose, if you please, of the precious news of the gospel, it does remind us that Paul did say in Romans 1 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. You'll notice that verse 2 began by saying, Preach the Word. What else did Paul say? He said, Be instant. You and I often think about instant in a number of ways. There's instant coffee and everything else seemingly that's more instant as the days go by. That word instant here though means to stand ready. It means to be alert. Paul thus told Timothy, Preach the word, be alert, be ready. We of course expect Brother Sims to be ready, to have made his preparation and to be prepared to unload the message of truth. But as you and I give thought to the privilege that will be involved in that meeting along that line, we notice he said, Be instant in season and also out of season. Those two are interesting presentations by Paul, isn't it? And how needful for a gospel preacher as well as really for any Christian. Notice what those words convey. When it's favorable, that is to say when it's convenient, but also when it's not. We know that the gospel is not to be altered, not to be changed, and we now see why Paul didn't simply say preach it when there's a house full. There may be only a handful, but they too need the truth. We may be blessed with a house full. There may be some lessons in which the, for services there aren't that many. But whether there be many or whether there be few, we should long for those opportunities when the gospel will be preached. It is interesting, isn't it, that the gospel isn't based on convenience. It wasn't convenient for Jesus to go to the cross what anguish, what suffering, what agony, what pain, but He endured it. Can we not be present for an hour during the course of these services each time in which we too can support the cause of Christ? On one occasion, as Jesus taught His disciples to pray, He said, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. If that truly is our thought and if that truly is our desire, then where else would we want to be next week? as we give thought to the accomplishment of God's will here, learning more about it, seeking more ways to appreciate and to make use of its implementation. 
Paul, though, went on to say this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The time will come. The interesting sets and features as we give thought about all of that tell us that Paul told Timothy to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. That word reprove, if you can see, means to reprehend severely. Furthermore, it means to convict or to point out error with intent toward repentance. We certainly anticipate that there will be those in the audience that will be in need of repentance. Perhaps they've never obeyed the gospel. Perhaps they have, but have become wayward. And we would understand that it is not merely Brother Sims who will be agitated or angry. It's the Word of God that hopefully will touch their spirit and urge them on to repentance. Notice again the language, to reprehend severely. Jesus did that from time to time, didn't He? When He encountered an individual who was in need of change in life, when He encountered an individual who was living in a way that was improper and unrighteous, the Lord often was very to the point, very much straightforward and very much insistent upon change. We understand that the Scriptures do the same. We have that opportunity next week again to invite and implore and encourage. And as we give thought to that, perhaps we will notice change in lives as individuals are brought nearer to living rightly before God. Beyond that means of reproof, we notice there's the word rebuke and also the word exhort. That word rebuke means to warn and to do so with an element of strength, admonition. Many times in the Scriptures, and I've listed some places where thoughts like that are presented, but it does remind us, doesn't it, that in addition to those other matters we have seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3, this is another opportunity, too, to preach the Word. Perhaps one final set of ideas will be ours this evening. That word exhort has within it the notion of encouragement and urging and to beg. And I thought it interesting that the verbs that were used in all of those instances, the word reprove, the word rebuke, the word exhort, all of them are second person, active, imperative, aorist. Now to many of us that may not mean a lot, but if I could perhaps highlight at least one of the features of it, it's this. It involves individual, continuous application meaning it's just as needful today as it was when Paul wrote it to Timothy. You and I thus are in need of exhortation. We're in need of rebuking those that need to be rebuked, using the Word of God as our tool to do so. And we're, of course, in need of exhorting. That is, pleading with an urging response of those who are separate and apart from a saved condition before our God in heaven. The loveliness and the power of this passage is perhaps highlighted as we think about the examples of it so many times in the New Testament, as Paul would go from city to city on the missionary journeys, wasn't he rebuking, reproving, and exhorting? And as you and I have the privilege of the same today, may we draw this lesson to its conclusion as we think perhaps about the Great Commission. In Mark, the 16th chapter, Paul wrote, or rather Jesus himself stated these words after his resurrection. He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned.
This gospel meeting has all of these things that we've studied tonight. Stirring up the faithful, reminding us to not be entangled with the affairs of this life, assisting us to prepare for perilous and grievous days, but also to preach the Word. As we continue to pray for and look forward to our meeting, I trust that the pieces are in place in your life and mine that we'll be able to encourage with maximal capability the existence of the meeting so that truly we can say that we've done all that we could to make it a fruitful endeavor for the cause of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we examine ourselves, each of us, whether we be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, might there be one or more in the audience that at this very moment, perhaps even as we work toward that meeting, you need to make some things right tonight. It may be that you need to respond in an initial way to the gospel call of invitation. Believe the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His mastrous name as the only begotten Son of God. And be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in that way tonight, why not tonight? If you have been a member of the Lord's body in a faithful way at one time, but this very moment there's something gnawing at your conscience because you know that things just are not well with your soul. Why remain in that condition? Why this very night? Why not come and make things right? There's a whole congregation ready to welcome you back into faithful arms of faithfulness. If we could help you in that by praying on your behalf, for your strength, for your renewed zeal and dedication, we'd be happy to do it. We would only ask you let us know in the way we could be of assistance and that you do so without delay while together we stand and while we sing.